I mentioned at the beginning of the video that I wanted to spend some time thinking about the Lord's Supper. And I want to begin this first part by giving you a formula, and the formula looks like this. Belief plus practice equals character. Belief plus practice equals character. In other words, you can know something to be true. It can be a part of your belief system. You can believe that it's a fact, but if you never take that fact or that thing you know to be true or that belief and put it into practice, put it into use, chances are it's never going to make a difference in who you are. Or on the flip side, you can do something over and over and over and over again without ever thinking about what it means. It just becomes this empty action, and chances are it will have no bearing on how you live or react in the world around you. Here's a couple of examples. You can know that you're forgiven by God. You can know that as a fact. But if that fact somehow through practice does not make it down into the core of your heart, into the center of your soul, then when you fall down, when you fail morally, you're going to be overrun with doubt. You're going to be assaulted with uncertainty about your relationship with God, the peace of God, the love of God, and the forgiveness of God. Or you can go through the motions of going to worship week after week after week after week, but then find faith hollow and un unsubstantial when the trying and painful circumstances of life invade your security. Belief plus practice equals character. And this brings us to the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus was sharing a very special meal with his disciples. It was known as the Passover meal. You know from your study of the Old Testament that the Passover was an incredibly important event in the life of Israel. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, Israel is in Egypt and they have become enslaved to Pharaoh. There is no hope of ending that enslavement. There is no hope out on the horizon, no solution, no rescue. There is nothing that gives them hope. And then one day there's this fellow by the name of Moses who shows up and he comes to Egypt with 10 plagues and he's bringing these 10 plagues upon Egypt and it is that 10th plague that makes all the difference. The death angel is going to come in judgment and take the firstborn of of each family, including Israel, unless the blood of a lamb is put on the top and the sides of a doorframe of their home. The death angel is going to come through Egypt and it will pass over the houses that are under the blood of the lamb. So that night, that lamb that has been slain is to be roasted and is to be eaten with unleavened bread while everyone is dressed, they're tying their sandals and making ready to get the, uh, to start the exodus out of Egypt. The Passover meal commemorated the night that Israel came out of its enslavement to Egypt and in that exodus entered into a relationship with God at Mount Sinai. And so now, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he is sharing this meal with his disciples. But in sharing this meal and eating this meal together, Jesus changes a couple of things. He takes the bread and says, this bread is my body, which is for you. Now, the odd thing is that there is no mention of a lamb, which is always part of the centerpiece of this Passover meal. But at this particular Passover meal, there is no mention of the lamb because Jesus is the lamb of God at the table. Now, remember, there was a time when John the Baptist saw Jesus walking down the street and he said to his disciples, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And not only does Jesus take the bread and says, this is my body, which is for you, but he takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And each time Jesus gives instructions about the bread and about the cup, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. 
The Lord's Supper, like the Passover meal, is an act of remembrance. When you eat the Lord's Supper every week together or alone, we are as a church, we are as disciples of Jesus, remembering that our lives are directly and intimately connected to that night. We are remembering that something extraordinary happened that changed the whole trajectory of the universe. And while we are holding in our hands, what we are holding in our hands is more than bread and wine, but they are reminders of a body given and blood shed so that our personal trajectory from now until unto eternity is changed. Now I want us to stop at this moment and let's praise God in song. As we begin the second part, I'm going to ask you to pause the video and read aloud to yourself and to those who might be with you the words of Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 23. Read slowly for understanding, and then, when you're finished, hit the video play button, and I'll continue the teaching. As you know, as you read through the Old Testament, there were three great Jewish festivals. Shavuot, which we call Pentecost, Sukkot, which we call the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, and then there is Pesach, which is Passover to us. There were two other festivals of note, the first one in Exodus chapter 29, which is Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, and then in Leviticus chapter 23, there is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus chooses to die. His death, burial, and resurrection is going to take place during the Passover. And one of the things that is implied in Passover is freedom. For Israel, the Passover meant freedom from an enslavement impossible to escape from under their own steam. Uh, their own steam. For Israel, Passover meant freedom from the fear of death as that, that death angel went through Egypt taking the firstborn. For Israel, the Passover meant freedom from these, this enemy intent on forcing them back into slavery. But for, for Israel, Passover meant more than just freedom from all of the bad stuff. It also meant freedom to now fully engage and to finally become the God-worshiping people that God desired to dwell among. You remember that he says in Exodus chapter 29 that I will dwell among the Israelites and I will be their God. The fact that God will dwell with his people first in the mobile tabernacle and then the fixed temple in the city of Jerusalem becomes just a fixed part of the history of Israel. And when you think about it, just the very idea that God is the creator, the heavens and the earth, is wanting to dwell with humans is just stunning. It's just astonishing. But here's the thing. The problem of sin, the problem of idols in the heart, the root problem that caused the separation of humans from God in Genesis chapter, chapter 3 is going to have to be dealt with. You'll remember Paul says it this way, that, there's, that this is a problem that all humans suffer with. And he writes in Romans chapter 3 that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Jesus dies during Passover, and his death, burial, and resurrection during the Passover time helps us to interpret what it all means. When Jesus died on the cross and resurrected on the third day, it meant freedom. Freedom from the enslavement that we all suffer to sin. That is to use Paul's words in Romans chapter 6, where he says over and over, we are slaves to sin. And so in light of this, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, chapter 1, that in Jesus, in him, we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. It meant freedom from the fear of death. 
That unknown author writes in Hebrews, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus during Passover meant freedom from the one who would drag us back into our slavery to sin. The Apostle John writes in that general letter in 1 John chapter 3 that the reason the Son of God, the reason that Jesus appeared was to destroy the devil's work. But it's so much more than just freedom from all of that bad stuff. It's freedom to experience the presence of God in this life. In Ephesians chapter 3, in this beautiful prayer that he writes in the middle of that letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit, through God's spirit in your inner being. God's spirit strengthens you in your inner being. It also means freedom to become the person you were always meant to be. You were not, you were not meant to just become a Christian and then nothing else happens until you get to heaven and that's where you need Jesus again. No, you go into this life of transformation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Part of the freedom that you experience in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is to become who you were always meant to be. And when you hold the emblems of the Lord's Supper in your hands, you are holding reminders that a body was given and that blood was shed in love so that the very power that afflicts you and afflicts everyone you love and the power that corrupts the world you live in has been forever and for all time and for eternity broken. In your hands as you hold the bread and the wine, you hold reminders that you have been rescued, that you have been given eternal life, that you will not taste death even though you die, that God's spirit is in you and when you hold that bread and that cup in your hand, it is a reminder that you are loved in a very profound way. As we partake of the bread now in the Lord's Supper, let us pray. Father, this bread reminds us that there was a sacrifice, a sacrifice given by your Son that we might live. And it's our prayer, Father, that as every time that we partake in this supper, that we remember the love that you have shown us in Christ on the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now let us pray as we partake of the fruit of the vine. Lord, as we partake of this fruit of the vine, as we drink from this cup, we want to be reminded that there is a new covenant established in Jesus' blood that changes us forever. Thank you for this great gift, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now, we come broken to the cross, but it's at the cross that we find healing. It's Jesus that brings forgiveness, and it's Jesus who brings love. Let's sing praise to him. As we begin this third part, I'm going to ask you to pause the video once again and read aloud to yourself and to, the, and to those who might be with you the words of John chapter 20, verses 1 through 22. And when you're finished, hit the video play button again, and I'll continue the teaching on this last section. When Jesus died on the cross on Friday, the sixth day of the week, one of the last things he said was this, it is finished, it's complete. His saying that on the sixth day on that Friday is reminiscent of God completing his work of creation on the sixth day. The new Adam, or as Paul refers to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last Adam, Jesus has come to life to reign forever and ever, and it begins in a garden. It has the sense that God is doing something familiar, but new. You know, friends, the, the turning point in history is not the discovery of penicillin. It's not space travel. It's not putting a man on the moon. It's not the internet. The turning point in the history of the world is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let me say that again. Of all the things that have happened in all of history, all of the important things, all the cruel things, all the great things, all the beautiful things, the turning point in history, in all of history, is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He has conquered the dead and will die no more. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. And when Jesus conquered death, it must have meant that he also defeated sin as well. And it is a victory that he shares with us, that victory over sin leading to a victory over death. And so in that great chapter, Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. You are sons of God now. And by him, by that spirit who lives in us, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Hallelujah. At the beginning of this sermon, I gave you a formula. Do you remember it? The formula is belief plus practice equals character. Belief plus practice equals character. The weekly practice of the Lord's Supper where we hold in our hands the reminders of what the sacrificed body and shed blood of Jesus entails changes our character and it changes our path. The resurrected Jesus said to his disciples, John chapter 20, verse 21, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Our path, our trajectory in life, our course, our direction has changed because of the death, burial, and resurrection. It means two things. Number one, our character brings signs of healing into this fallen world. Our character brings signs of healing into this fallen world of broken hearts, of subverted minds, of wicked intentions, of enslaved desires, and impaired senses. As we grow into the likeness of Jesus, we demonstrate to the people around us a heavenly personality, a spiritual demeanor, and a Christ-like persona. And who couldn't use an example like that in the world as it is right now today? And then the second thing is, our lives unveil and unleash a unique and one-of-a-kind love. 
The love that we experience in the cross, the, the love that we experience as we are saved and forgiven, the love that we experience as grace comes into our life is a love that changes us and turns us into a forgiving, loving, serving, grace-oriented person. How do you begin to describe the love that would go through the cross and to growth, go through the kangaroo trial and the mocking and the beating in order to share the resurrection with someone like you and me? The next time you hold that little piece of bread and that little cup of juice in your hands, remember the words of Paul. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's close our time this morning in praise of that kind of love.